Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. You know, I love salmon so much that once in a while, I actually drive up to the Mattapedia River in Quebec to go fly fishing. But that's a whole lot of mileage for very few fish. The rest of the time, of course, I purchase salmon at the supermarket, and most of what I buy is indeed farm-raised. Moe Farm-Raised Salmon offers restaurant-quality salmon right to your plate, and they have been in the business for over 60 years. It's available in seven different origins, Norway, Scotland, Iceland, Ireland, Faroe Islands, Canada, and Chile. Each has its own distinctive taste and texture. They offer raw salmon fillets, but you can also purchase pre-seasoned portions or cold-smoked bites. And Moe salmon is available ready to eat with cold-smoked ultra-thin slices as well as center-cut loin. Please visit moeysalmon.us to learn more. That's Moe, M-O-W-I, salmon, dot U-S, to learn more. Buying furniture is not easy. You want well-designed pieces that fit into a modern lifestyle, yet the look should be timeless. And you want a custom experience creating furniture designed specifically for your space. My suggestion is that you check out Cozy, a North American company that thoughtfully designs furniture for modern living. Their high-quality products are delivered quickly and are easy to assemble. Cozy also offers a great range of coffee tables, washable rugs, wall shelving, and credenzas. Their outdoor collection features high-quality modular sofas and sectionals made for outdoor living. You can visit their store in Toronto. Cozy now has expanded from an online market to their first in-person space, or go directly to their website at Cozy.com. That's C-O-Z-E-Y dot com. Transform your living space today with Cozy. Visit Cozy.com to start customizing your furniture today. You know, I grew up with Vermont farmers who made do with tools they had on hand. A hammer, pliers, uh, and baling twine, of course, for most jobs. When I became a cook, however, I found that having just the right knife or maybe the perfect carbon steel skillet made all the difference. And the right tool also added pleasure to my cooking. I truly enjoyed my time prepping as well as cooking food. And that also goes for a car. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. And that includes available dynamic sky panorama glass roof, available front row massaging seats, available 33-inch all-terrain tires, and available multi-terrain select. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Hi, this is Christopher Kimball. Thanks for downloading this week's podcast. You can go to our website, 177milkstreet.com, to stream our television show, get our recipes, or take our free online cooking classes. Enjoy the show. This is Mill Street Radio from PRX. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. 
Today we're speaking with Nicole Beyer, comedian and host of the amateur baking competition show, Nailed It. She talks about her first day on set, how she uses improv and physical comedy, and why the show is not about watching people fail. These people don't know how to bake. We give them time limits. We ask them to recreate this insane thing. And there's eight cameras in front of them. And then there's me, a comedian that they might know, might not know, screaming at them. So I fully understand how you would freak out under that kind of pressure. It's crazy. Also coming up, we get a good char on Catalonian-inspired grilled vegetables. And later, we learn how to make perfect homemade fried rice with J. Kenji Lopez-Alt. But first is my interview with Carl Desmet. He's manager of the world's only international sourdough library. Carl, welcome to Milk Street. Thank you for having me. Let's start with a really stupid question. What is a sourdough starter? That's not really a stupid question. It's a question a lot of people ask. A sourdough starter is actually very simple uh, to make. It's a blend of flour and water that comes to life by feeding it during six, seven days daily with fresh water and fresh flour. And then uh, life occurs. The, the, the microorganisms start to multiply and then you have something that has fermentation power that makes the bread leaven. And you have lactic acid bacteria that do amazing things with the proteins in the flour. Why does sometimes you can make a starter, it works, other times it doesn't work, and other times it it turns really sour, it has an off flavor or, or odor to it. So why is it sometimes successful and sometimes not successful? Uh, The reason it is not successful might be that, first of all, people give up too fast. You will notice that when you you start a sourdough, that the the first couple of days, it can really stink and you think that you did something wrong, but you just have to keep going. Uh, Secondly, it could be that the flour just is not fit for a sourdough, that the flour has been treated or bleached. And thirdly, a sourdough actually acidifies time after time. So what happens is that some of these lactic acid bacteria cannot survive when the environment is too sour. So sourdough becomes a very simple thing where only one or two lactic acid bacteria survive that are very dominant and that are responsible for a high production of sourdough. Making a sourdough is simple, but maintaining it and keeping it consistent, that's, that's another uh, ballgame. So you have over 100 starters in your library, sourdough library. Yes. How often do you have to go in and refresh each of these sourdough starters? Yeah, we do every two months. We feed all of them three times before putting them back in the fridges. We feed them following the recipe we got from the owners and they give us their recipe and the amounts that they are using. And they also send us the flour that they use in order to refresh. So besides the collection of sourdoughs, we also have a collection of flours because some sourdoughs contain two, three. There's even one up to six different kinds of flours. And the flour you add to the sourdough over time will completely change its flavor if you don't use the right flour, right? If you start changing the flour, the the flavor of the sourdough will change. But also the temperature, a, a change of two degrees 
or maybe in Fahrenheit it's 5 degrees, difference can completely change the overall flavor of a sourdough. When you go in a colder fermentation, you produce a lot of acidic acids, so your sourdough tends to be more vinegar, to be more acidic. When you go warm, your sourdough is more milky, more lactic. In, in all of these warm countries, there is often no link to sourness. But in the colder countries, Germany, Russia, Scandinavia, they have a cold climate and often the breads are more acidic there than in a country like Italy, for instance. In Italy, it's very difficult to find acidic breads. That's really interesting. I always wondered about that because like in, I spent a little time in Austria and they have a lot of the Schwarzbrot and other things and there's a lot of acidic breads. Yes. Um, let's talk about these 128 starters. So some of them are pretty interesting. You said number 100 is Japanese. It's made with cooked sake rice. Could you talk about that? Yes. So it's a bakery coming from Tokyo, Kimuraya Bakery, and they have this starter made from cooked rice and malted rice. So it's a blend of cooked rice and a bit of malted rice. And it origins from 1874, and it was in the, the moment that in Japan, the emperor was taking all the power and the samurai suddenly were all out of job. Now, a samurai can never work for another, for someone else. So a lot of them became independent. Some of them became fishermen, carpenters, butchers, whatever. And Mr. Kimura, he became a baker and he learned how to make sourdough. Only he was not happy with the flavor of it. And he had a friend samurai who was doing sake. He was making sake. And so they started to convert the flour to rice and they ended up with this amazing what they call a sakadane sourdough which is just cooked rice and a little bit of malted rice uh you wrote a starter has its own heart almost its own will treat a starter nicely and it will reward you tremendously like a good yes. friend um so 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 my question is you love starters <laughs> and you treat them and think of them as, as your friends, right? You have 128 very close friends in your library. Yes, but luckily I am not the only one. I think that everyone who has a starter at home, people compare it to a pet or to a baby or whatever, because it's something, if you brought it to life by yourself, well, you have a certain link to it. And, and for me in the library, I know a lot of the people, of course, behind a starter, and some have become good friends. Carl, it's been a real pleasure having you on Mill Street. I now have to go start my starter. Well, good luck with it. And if you need advice, you know where to find me. That was Carl de Smet. He's manager of the Puratos World Heritage Sourdough Library in Belgium. It's time to take some of your calls with my co-host, Sarah Moulton. Sarah is, of course, the star of Sarah's Weeknight Meals on public television, also author of Home Cooking 101. So, Sarah, before we open up the phone lines, I do have a very personal question for you. Oh, dear. So what was it you loved most? You worked at Gourmet for like 10 years. Was there a moment that it was really like the best day at Gourmet? Well, I had two different jobs there. The first one was being in the test kitchen the first four years. And I'd say a really good day was when I did my first centerfold. 
Well, that sounds <laughs> it wrong. Does. But I do think there is an element of pornography, you know, to food photography because you just want people to be right. drooling. The first one I did was in July of 1984. Wow. So that and was, what was it? Well, I did a two melon soup puree of honeydew and cantaloupe. And back then they had more flavor than they do now. And one was flavored with lemon juice and one was flavored with lime juice. And Mm -hmm. then the whole thing had a little plop of sour cream and some shredded mint. And then I did actually salmon scallopini with dried porcini mushroom sauce. I don't remember what else was on there, but it was very exciting. So that was a high point. Hungry. Okay. Open up the phone. Yes. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Hi, this is Sally Elsby from Wilmington. How can we help you? It's about meat doneness. Okay. I hope you can help me understand a term I heard on the first season of Top Chef when a contestant was told her steaks were overrested. What does overrested mean? What's it look like? Is it cold? Is it congealed? How can you tell if it's overrested? Resting simply means when a roast or a steak is done. A lot of people think you should Uh let it rest and sit at room temperature for, depends on how big the roast or steak. A steak would be a few minutes. A roast could be 20 minutes. A turkey might be half an hour. And it allows Uh the juices to be reabsorbed by the muscle fibers in the meat. Now, overrested Uh means someone let it sit so long that it started to cool off and it's no longer at a temperature where you really want to eat it. And some people think resting uh-huh. is a bunch of nonsense anyway. Meathead Goldwyn, for example, who's on the show a lot, who's a grilling expert out of Chicago, he thinks you should grill a steak and then just eat it because that's the right temperature. Oh, really? And I'd say I've had mixed results. I think if you cut into it the second it comes off the grill or out of the oven, that's probably a mistake. But I think letting something mm-hmm. sit 20 minutes, like a roast chicken, I mean, after 20 minutes, it starts to get cool. So I would say a very brief rest of a few minutes is fine. I've never heard that term before, so somebody invented it on Top Chef. Never heard that term at all. (laughs) Tom Colicchio, I think, was a judge on Top Chef, and he hates meat that's been sitting around. It may have been the one who said it. Yeah, Ah, yes. Well, he doesn't uh, like it. I think resting is extremely important. I've seen huge differences in when I let something rest and when I don't. It tends to be juicier. Mm -hmm. It tends to be more evenly cooked. It doesn't dry out. Let's say I've accidentally overcooked something like a pork loin or a pork tenderloin, which is easy to overcook. If I let it rest, it tends to cover up some of that problem. If I, A, overcooked it slightly and B, sliced into it right away, it's just tough and dry. So I'm a huge fan of resting. We both agree resting is important. The question is how long. Yeah. I mean, I think of duck that really does need to be rested. But other than that, you know, I was just wondering. And, you know, I'm glad to hear that overrested is not a thing. I really appreciate this information. It's great. Thank well, you. Well, try a few minutes and um, see what happens. Yes. Sally, yeah. thanks for calling. Okay. Thanks for calling. Thanks a lot. Bye-bye. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Hi, this is Jeremy from Phoenixville, Pennsylvania. How can we help you? So... I like cooking with uh, beans, whether they're dried beans or canned beans. And I've noticed that there's a lot of recipes that will tell you to soak the beans and then toss the liquid. And the last time I did this, I realized that the liquid that the beans were soaking in came up a little cloudy and had a, you know, viscosity to it. 
So I was thinking that there's got to be all kinds of good stuff that's coming out of the beans into the water that you shouldn't just toss down the drain. So I was wondering what the reasoning is to toss it, whether we should toss it, or whether if I'm making a pot of beans for soup or a stew, especially where the exact amount of water doesn't really matter as much, if I shouldn't just toss the beans and the water into the pot. Okay. We like to soak beans overnight or 24 hours. Can I just clarify, because he said he likes to cook with dried or canned. We're talking about the dried Dried. only. And you would use eight cups of water and two tablespoons of kosher salt. So in that case, given the salt level, you would have to toss it. You wouldn't want to cook the beans in the brine. Number two, I'm of the belief, although all scientists totally disagree with me, which never slows me down. No, you're going flat. Well, yeah, in terms of gas, I think and I believe that if you toss that water, you end up in a better place in terms of digestion than if you don't. Although we did some research on this and nobody has confirmed that's true. And the third thing is I just got back from Mexico City and I was with a chef, Eduardo Garcia, who makes the best bean stew in the world. He soaks them for 24 hours, throws out the water. Soaks them in salted water? No, he doesn't use salt. He uses three times more water than beans once they're soaked and cooks them. But he had a trick, which I love. If you want to add meat to your beans, like pork, cook the pork Mm -hmm. in water, which is what they do in Mexico, separately, right? Once it's cooked, take it out and use that cooking liquid for the Ah. they used in the pork for the beans. Ah, so you've got like sort of a stock. That is amazing because you've made a a meat stock, right, with the pork, and that's going to be a lot more flavorful than whatever water he used to soak the beans in. The last thing I'll just add is he made a sofrito, you know, onions, garlic, et cetera, tomato. He cooked that in a skillet for 10 minutes and added that at the end, not at the beginning. So if you want the world's best pot of beans, stew beans, you know, just cook up a sofrito, but instead of adding it at the beginning, just top the beans with it. Salt the water ahead of time. I think that will add a lot of flavor. Yeah, I mean, can I just weigh in? I mean, Chris is the expert on beans, but that the reason for salting the, the water that you soak them in overnight is twofold. One is it helps to uh, make the skin of the bean more tender, and also it deeply flavors the bean. So the bean takes, I'm not going to say salty, just more beany. It just ups its natural taste. You know, but we still haven't addressed the nutrients. How do we feel about that? Well, I mean, it's got so much salt in it, you got to throw it If you it salted out. it, but yeah. if you didn't... On one hand, we have flatulence. On the other hand, we have protein. No, um, I'm sure you're throwing out some nutrients. And if you're not salting the water, I would say, and you, feel, you, know, you want to, go ahead, cook it in the water. It's soaked in. All right. Jeremy, thank you. <laughs> thank you. Yep. Take care. Take care. Bye-bye. All right. Thanks. This is Milk Street Radio. If you have a food-related question, give us a ring anytime. 855-426-9843. One more time. That's 855-426-9843. Or email us at questions at MilkStreetRadio.com. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Hi, I'm Sydney. Hi, Sydney. Where are you calling from? I'm calling from Los Angeles. How can we help you today? Well, I made some crinkle cookies a few weeks ago, and I had a problem. They didn't crinkle And I tried a few different things with, like, chilling the dough, but every time they were just really flat. So I was wondering how I can fix that and make them crinkly. 
Did you do the traditional thing of rolling them in the confectioner's sugar at the end? I did, and I thought I put too much, so I did less, but then they would just kind of, like the sugar melted into them. Wow, because that's what makes them crinkle, is the sugar, is rolling them in the sugar, because the sugar sort of dries out the cookie, you know, at the top, while the rest of the cookie inside stays moist. Chris, help, help. I'm confused. Is this a chocolate crinkle cookie or something else? It's a chocolate crinkle cookie. What's the oven temperature you're baking at? Oh, it was 350. You might try 325 because it's the spreading of the dough that causes the crinkling on the top, right? So you might try that. The other thing you might try is you said something about chilling the dough. That's going to mean the dough's not going to separate and spread. So I think this is a case, sort of unique case, where you wouldn't chill the cookies, the dough, the balls of dough first. I would think they could be soft and then just throw them in the oven. Those two things I would try. Are these ending up being pretty thin? I mean, are they puffed up or what happens when they bake? Well, they don't really spread out. So I think that might have been the problem. They were chilled first, the balls? Yes, they were. Yeah, I think just don't chill them. And let us know how it goes. I will. Give that a shot. I think that should solve the problem. All right. Thank you so much. Okay. Thanks. Thanks, Sydney. Thanks, Sydney. Bye-bye. Bye. You're listening to Milk Street Radio. Up next, we're chatting with Nicole Byer, comedian and host of Nailed It. That and more in just a moment. I'm Christopher Kimball, and now here's a word from our friends at Allagash Brewing Company, who love food as much as we do here at Milk Street. Hi, this is Jason Perkins. I'm the brewmaster at Allagash, and I've been making Allagash White in Portland, Maine since 1999. So a white beer is a very old style of beer. Traditionally, it was brewed with spices of some type, typically coriander and orange peel. And I think one of the things that makes Allagash White distinctive and different is the rare combination of complexity and drinkability. And it's sometimes remarkable to stop and realize that I never get tired of it. You know, I'll open a can or I'll pour a glass and the first sip and I'm like, man, this beer is good. (laughs) There are a lot of different ways that folks can enjoy an Allagash White, and here are some of the examples of what folks here at the brewery like to do. My favorite thing to pair with an Allagash White is simple, beautiful seared scallops over a bed of fresh greens with blood orange and shaved fennel. My favorite would probably have to be like an Italian or a hoagie, capicola, pickled vegetables, Crusty bread. It's got that nice lemony, zesty character that just gets you ready for the next bite. The ultimate pairing for me is this dish called bosom, which is this like big pork shoulder with like salt and brown sugar. We also call it candy pork in my house and a little like scallion ginger sauce. It's like lettuce, rice, pork, sip of white, lettuce, rice, pork, sip of white, and it's just perfection. My other top choice was like a hot dog. Like just have a hot dog and have an Allagash White. You don't need to dress it up. There's something about mussels with beer, especially the white, that is just so good. 
I feel like it goes really well with different soft cheeses that aren't too dominant, but then also with like spicy Indian food. So I think it's just really versatile. I could imagine like something like, um, like lemon meringue pie. That would be really nice. Pairing Allagash White with carrot cake is a thing of beauty. This maybe it sounds really boring, but pepperoni pizza. I feel like after a long week, having like a nice warm pepperoni pizza and a cold Allagash White is just like you made it. Like you did your week. You deserve this pizza. You deserve this beer. It's perfect in summer. It's perfect in winter. I haven't really found a flavor that I don't think works really well with Allagash White. <laughs> yeah, so not only do I drink it while I cook, I often cook with it. So if I'm creating some kind of stew, I'll add a little bit of Allagash White to it. A lot of people use Allagash White in like a fried fish batter. Anywhere where you can add like a spritz of lemon or a spritz of lime, that could be the beer. We are very food-minded here at Allagash, obviously. <laughs> and I think because of that, Allagash White is kind of subtle in a way that not all beers are, and I think that makes it very food-friendly. I think it tends to unlock qualities in the food that you otherwise wouldn't necessarily notice. Like it's not too hoppy or it's not too sweet, so it sits right in the middle and sort of brings the flavors of the dish to life. If you ask anyone here at Allagash, we're pretty much all stands for this beer. We love it so much because every time you have it, you pick up something new. Every time you come back to it, you're reminded like, oh wow, yeah, that's really good. This is Jason Perkins again. Just want to say thanks to everyone at Allagash for sharing. You can try Allagash White at home, too. Head to Allagash.com slash locator to find Allagash White near you. For 21 plus only, please drink responsibly. Allagash Brewing Company, Portland, Maine. This is Milstreet Radio. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. Right now, it's my interview with Nicole Byer. She's a comedian, also host of the Netflix amateur baking competition, Nailed It. Nicole, welcome to Milk Street. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Well, it's a pleasure having you on. Um, you used to wait tables, and you said your customers, quote, they would give me a lot of money because they were like, <laughs> you're very funny. And then they would say, but you're really bad at waiting tables. Yeah. So you you decided that improv was really a much better career path than, uh, than being in the uh, restaurant business. Yeah, I... Um my roommate at the time, my friend Jenny, was a, a server, and she made very good money. And I was like, how do I make money? And she said, well, you can serve at my restaurant. I said, okay. And then I quickly found out I cannot balance a tray. One of my legs is longer than the other, so <laughs> I walk up and down. And I knew this about myself, but I was like, holding a tray can't be that hard. Well, when you are knock-kneed and one of your legs is longer than the other, you will drop almost everything you try to put on a tray. I <laughs> would always forget like a kid's meal, so everyone would have their food and a kid would be in a corner, and that's what you want to eat first. So I'd be like, I'm sorry, the kitchen. Always blame the kitchen. And I remembered if tables asked for like a bunch of things like forks and straws and ketchup, I'd be like, guys, I'll come back with one of those things or all of those things. Who knows? So I made my bad waitressing a game. So that's why people gave me money. And then I found improv. 
what was your first night of doing improv in front of an audience like? Oh, um, my first time I did improv in front of an audience was a student show. It was like my 101 show. And so my dad had died in the middle of my improv class. And I was like, come see my improv show before he died. And he was like, ah, okay. And then he died. And the joke I like to say is my dad, he'd rather die than watch me make stuff up on stage. Uh, Some people don't like that joke. I love it. Well, only you can tell that joke. (laughs) Yeah. But um, it was like exhilarating and it was fun and you didn't know what was going to happen. And that was addicting. And then I realized that like, I love being on stage. I, I love it. I need it. I crave it. It was amazing. You said about that doing improv after your dad died, you said, I didn't have to be me. I could go on stage and be, hey, like, I'm an elephant. Yeah. Um, Was that something that was relevant just at that time after your father died? Or is that just something that you love about being on stage? I mean, I think it ties into a lot of things in my life. My mother died when I was in high school in a play. (laughs) So I didn't have to deal with my mother's death for, like, you know, the two hours that play rehearsal was happening in high school. So that was a wonderful escape because, I mean, nobody really knows how to talk to a 16-year-old about their mother dying. My dad didn't know how to do it. Like, my sister wasn't equipped because she was only a year and a half older than me. So uh, it was therapeutic to have something where I didn't have to be me. And uh, people were like, you're funny and you're talented. So, like, that... Positive affirmations made me feel better. So when it happened with my dad, it was kind of like a saving grace. I think the universe knew that I needed a performance outlet in order to grieve properly or get a moment to step out from grieving. Um, So and it feeds into each other. Like it was a way for me to grieve, a way for me to escape, but then also a thing that I needed and a thing that I love. So, So now your show nailed it. Uh, a baking competition where everybody ends in disaster. Uh, it's an odd but oddly wonderful combination <laughs> between you and Jacques Torres, your compatriot, the the serious chef on the show, baker on the show. Mm-hmm. How does that work exactly? So when I got the job, I told them I didn't know anything about baking. I had no prior knowledge about chefs, baking, pastries, nothing. And they were like, great, we love it. <laughs> and I didn't get to meet Jacques before filming. And they called me to set and they were just like, here are your marks. Here's the camera. Here's where the prompter will be. And here's Jacques Torres. And I was like, hello, Jacques Torres. And I, I mean, I didn't do any research. I didn't know a single thing about this man. And Talking to him, I was like, oh, my God, he seems to know so much. Also, he's really kind. And then I was like, this old French man, this old white French man, I don't think he's going to like my jokes. But I said something, like, real filthy. And he laughed so hard. (laughs) And he goes, oh, Nicole, wow, you are funny. And I was like, oh, (laughs) oh, we, me and this older gentleman have the same sense of humor. We think the same things are funny. And then I went home after that first day and was like, wow, this man was kind, funny, uh, liked me and really smart and like a joy to be around. So then I like looked him up and I was like, holy shit, 
this man is like a world renowned pastry chef who is baked and cooked for famous people and has had his own television show. I was like, oh my God, I didn't know I was sitting next to this man that is like so well respected. Like he's just uh, like, I don't know. It's one of those things where like, I don't have parents. So the universe places older people in my life who are parent like, and he's one of those people. And he's just, he's treated me so kind and so well. His wife is so kind and so nice to me. I'm very blessed to have them in my life, which sounds very cheesy, but I'm very grateful for him. He does look very kind. But what's so interesting about the show is you look like you should be hosting the show. I mean, it's it, it makes perfect sense to me. And he, he kind of looks sometimes like, how exactly did I get on the show? Oh, yeah. I, I mean, mean, why am I here? I don't quite get it. I said to him, I think it was season four, I was like, don't you find it ironic that you're a highly decorated, well-respected pastry chef and you make money eating trash? And then he had a lovely, <laughs> genuine answer. And he was like, yes, but I get to teach. And I was like, yeah, uh, man, you're just like the best. I love him. He's great. So your show nailed it. it really, very few people nail it, right? Yeah, I correct. Mean, it, so what's the dynamic of a show where all the contestants are kind of losers? You must have an understanding of how they're actually winners on some level. I mean, I think they're winners because they, I think, I don't think any of them are losers because they're all trying something that they've never done. And like people, people always go, oh, I can do that better. Can yeah. you? I don't, I don't believe you. So like these people don't know how to bake. We give them time limits. We ask them to recreate this insane thing. And there's eight cameras in front of them. And then there's me, a comedian that they might know, might not know, screaming at them. So <laughs> I fully understand how you would freak out under that kind of pressure. It's crazy. What about the end of the show? So the, the goal here is is to win the competition. How do you resolve it at the end when you reveal each of the cakes? Oh, yeah. So when time's up, they reveal them one by one. We critique them. And then we wait and then taste them at the judges' table. And then after we taste them, we decide who the winner is uh, based on looks and taste. And a lot of time, taste will help some. Like, if all three look insane and we're like, oh, none of these <laughs> look great, then we go, th uh, we go uh, taste. And then sometimes when they all taste insane and you're like, this is the wildest thing I've ever put in my mouth, then we go on looks. So what is the favorite part of your job on the show? I think my favorite part is, um, I mean, when they let me do whatever I want. <laughs> um, yeah, like the comedy is my favorite part of the job. It's uh, one of those things where I don't know anything about baking, nor do I really care about baking. I'm just trying to make jokes, but I have to judge a baking show. So like that's my game. Like I asked, can I roll off the judges table on the last day? And they were like, oh, ha, 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 Nicole. And I said, no, I really want to roll off the judges table. And they were like, all right, Nicole. So they, they went and got me a big stunt pad. And Wes was like, all right, Nicole, here's how you roll. And I was like, you dumb, dumb. I know how to roll off a table. Are you kidding? <laughs> I, I love physical comedy. And then Wes was like, well, I'm just trying to be safe. And I was like, you're just trying to be safe. Uh, Wes, truly, I'm like the little sister that man has never asked for. But um, 
I roll off the table. I roll all the way to the pantry. I still think it's really funny. I just love when they leave my jokes in. That's my favorite part of my job. Uh, you talked about you know rehearsing a joke if you're a stand-up comic for a couple of years and finally goes on the special. Are you surprised, I assume you are sometimes, about what works in front of an audience and what doesn't? Oh, yeah. Oh, absolutely. Mystified sometimes. Also, you'll tell a joke that kills in front of one crowd, and literally 15 minutes later, you'll walk into like, so like the improv is two rooms, so you'll tell it in one room, and it kills. You'll walk into the second room, and it like dead silent, and you're like, what the f*** happened? Um, and then you have to work backwards, because you're like, I know this joke works. I gotta make it work for the people. So yeah, it's, it's, it surprises me all the time. Uh, you were on James Corden's show, yeah. and Mike, Michael Douglas was sitting next to you. <laughs> yes. I, and I just loved, I was watching you, then I started looking at him, and he was like, he didn't know what to do with yes. it. Yes. <laughs> he was so uncomfortable. I thought it was just, the camera should have been on him the whole time, not you. Did you just talk about that? Because, man, he looked like he wanted to be somewhere else. Yeah, he, um, I think it was one of those things where he just, he didn't understand how to respond to me. He didn't know what to do with me. And I encounter that a lot. But he did tell me I was funny during a commercial break, which was very kind. So when someone says comedy is really about discovering some sort of, you know, eternal truth about the human condition, is that complete, utter nonsense? Or is there some truth to that? I think there's some truth to it. I mean, I'm not like George Carlin, where I'm like, here are the truths of the world, and it's a rant. But I do like to pepper in a little bit of like, like in my special, I talk about slavery and stuff and people touching my hair. And I think those are like things that everyone can relate to or whatever. But yeah, I think it's like uh, you're just talking about the human condition and like what we all find funny. Nicole, it's been uh, an extraordinary pleasure having you on Milk Street. Thank you for having me. That was actress and comedian Nicole Byer. She's the host of Netflix's baking competition, Nailed It. Entertainment and food seem made for each other, but in the early days of the Food Network, that was a questionable proposition. Today, however, on shows such as Nailed It or Chopped, cooking has become a successful medium for almost any type of entertainment, from drama to game show. Back in 1994, I told Reese Schoenfeld, the founder of the Food Network, that his idea would never work. Well, one of us laughed all the way to the bank. It's time to chat with Lynn Clark about this week's recipe, Spanish grilled vegetables. Lynn, how are you? I'm great, Chris. So vegetables on the grill are always an afterthought, except in Spain, where they have a history and tradition of cooking vegetables actually on the coals because they want to get some nice char on the outside and a lot of smoky flavor. So let's take that concept of getting smoky, almost charred vegetables on the outside off of a backyard barbecue grill. Right, so usually when we cook vegetables, especially on the grill, we kind of treat them very delicately. What we're gonna do here is sort of flip the script on them and treat them like the meat. We would also probably be grilling at the same time that we're cooking the vegetables. So we're gonna create a two-level grill One side is going to be very hot. It's going to be over high heat. The other side is going to be off. That's going to allow us to get a lot of char on the vegetables, but then move them to the cooler side of the grill so they can fully cook through and get nice and tender. That's how we cook a steak, and so we're going to do the same thing with our vegetables. And what vegetables are we using? So we're using eggplant. 
and you want to use Japanese eggplant here. They typically use a globe eggplant, but we found a Japanese eggplant is smaller, so it's going to cook faster. Thinner skin, so you don't have to peel it, less prep. Red bell pepper, onion two ways. Red onion cut into wedges and scallions. Those all get tossed with olive oil, uh, sweet or hot paprika and salt and pepper. That sits while the grill is heating, so it gets some nice flavor on it. And the big thing here is you don't want to be worried about getting them too dark. You really want that char on the vegetables. Nice, smoky, smoky flavor. They come off the heat, we chop them up into bite-sized pieces. While we love that char, it did need a little bit of balance, so we added some cherry tomatoes, sherry vinegar, garlic, and honey. So we balance that out with a little bit of sweetness and acidity, and it really goes nicely with a lot of that smoky char we got off the vegetables. So I can burn my vegetables, and I'm doing it right. Exactly. This is the perfect recipe for me. Thank you, Lynn. This is a great way to grill your vegetables in the summer. This is Esquilavada, which comes from Spain, of course, which is smoky grilled vegetables. Thank you. You're welcome. You can get this recipe at 177milkstreet.com. You're listening to Milk Street Radio. Coming up, Jay Kenji Lopez-Alt explains how to make the best fried rice using whatever scraps you have in the fridge. We'll be right back. You know, wonderful pistachios have become my go-to snack. Now, I could list all the health benefits. They're a good source of protein, fiber, and unsaturated fats. But for me, flavor comes first. And that's why it's pistachios, not peanuts, in our household. Wonderful pistachios come in a variety of flavors and sizes, including sea salt and vinegar, chili roasted, and smoked barbecue. Check out wonderfulpistachios.com to learn more. That's wonderfulpistachios.com. You know, I grew up with Vermont farmers who made do with tools they had on hand. A hammer, pliers, uh, and baling twine, of course, for most jobs. When I became a cook, however, I found that having just the right knife or maybe the perfect carbon steel skillet made all the difference. And the right tool also added pleasure to my cooking. I truly enjoyed my time prepping as well as cooking food. And that also goes for a car. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. And that includes available dynamic sky panorama glass roof, available front row massaging seats, available 33-inch all-terrain tires, and available multi-terrain select. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. You know, I love salmon so much that once in a while, I actually drive up to the Mattapedia River in Quebec to go fly fishing. But that's a whole lot of mileage for very few fish. The rest of the time, of course, I purchase salmon at the supermarket, and most of what I buy is indeed farm-raised. Moe Farm-Raised Salmon offers restaurant-quality salmon right to your plate, and they have been in the business for over 60 years. It's available in seven different origins, Norway, Scotland, Iceland, Ireland, Faroe Islands, Canada, and Chile. Each has its own distinctive taste and texture. They offer raw salmon fillets, but you can also purchase pre-seasoned portions or cold-smoked bites. And Moe salmon is available ready to eat with cold-smoked ultra-thin slices as well as center-cut loin. Please visit moeysalmon.us to learn more. That's Moe, M-O-W-I, salmon.us to learn more. 
Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. This is Mill Street Radio. I'm Christopher Kimball. Next up, Sarah Malt and I will be answering a few more of your cooking questions. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Hi, this is Olivia Nowinski from North Wales, Pennsylvania. What is your question today? Well, I'm calling because I was making a pork shoulder, and in researching recipes, I was seeing different finishing times for the pork to be at correct temperature, as low as 145 and as high as 195. And I got super confused as to why that might be, so I thought I'd reach out to you guys. Well, the thing is that depending on what cut you're using, and pork shoulder, you know, it's a muscle that's used a lot, and it needs to go low and slow and, you know, ultimately reach a higher temperature. The 145, you know, you probably looked at a generic answer for pork loin or tenderloin, which are not tough cuts of meat. And you do want to cook them less because otherwise they will just dry out completely because they don't have the connective tissue and the fat that pork shoulder does. Okay. Trichinosis, I've seen anywhere from 137 to 140 is the temperature at which it's killed. And it's not the big issue it used to be. So, you know, when you're dealing with those lower fat, leaner meats, you really want to take them only till, you know, say about 140 because there's carryover cooking time. Uh, Chris? Let's talk about trichinosis, one of my favorite topics. Um, (laughs) Almost all the trichinosis cases, of which there are, I think, 20 a year or something, comes from squirrel. How do you know that? I looked it up once, you know, a master of useless information. But I totally agree with Sarah that... uh, Connective tissue. I mean, if you do a pig roast, for example, which I used to do in August every year, you want the pork to be fall apart tender, and that's not going to happen at 140. That's going to happen at 185 to 200, somewhere in that range. So I agree with Sarah that you really want to cook that, but a pork tenderloin has no connective tissue. You're going to cook like a beef tenderloin. Okay, that's great to know. I ended up actually cooking it to that higher number accidentally. My shoulder was done much sooner than I expected, but it was that perfect, like, pull-apart texture. So I was glad that that's what I went with. Oh, well, happy ending. You could also throw a pork shoulder. I do it every once a month into a slow cooker or you could use a pressure cooker, Instapot, whatever. It cooks in an hour or less and, uh, you know, cube the meat in two-inch chunks first. And then you have this great base you can do anything with, tacos or whatever you want. But that's another way of doing it high and fast 
but it does a good job. And if you want to cook squirrel, you can call us back oh, next dear. week. <laughs> Got to smother that in a good French sauce and you're all set to go. <laughs> squirrel is up next. Yeah, not sure I'm ready for that, but I'll keep you guys in mind if I ever do whip out the squirrel. Okay, 1-800-SQUIRREL, that's us. <laughs> Thanks, Take Lydia. care. Thank Bye. you. Bye. This is Milk Street Radio. If you're finding yourself stumped in the kitchen, please give us a ring, 855-426-9843. One more time, 855-426-9843, or email us at questions at MilkStreetRadio.com. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Hi, this is Mike. I'm from Sellersburg, Indiana. How can we help you? Well, I had a I had an interesting question to me that has to do with my methodology, if you will. I run a mac and cheese business. And a couple of my recipes I feel like would be enhanced by some browned butter. And Mm -hmm. I seem to not be able to hit the mark on that, especially if I'm cooking over flame. It's a lot different. So I'm just wondering if there's some tips and tricks on how to get like perfect brown butter. How much butter are you trying to brown at one time? For this is a commercial operation. Sounds like a lot of butter at once, right? For two gallons of sauce, I'm probably making somewhere around eight to 12 sticks of butter. What kind of pan are you cooking it in? It's just honestly one of the name brands I've gotten at, like Coles. And it's given me a lot of good moments and a lot of bad moments. Is the bottom of the pan dark colored or is it a bright stainless steel? A bright stainless steel. Okay. And this is a saucepan or a skillet? This would be a saucepan. Finally, over what kind of heat are you using? I start my sauces normally over a medium-low to a medium just to kind of simmer the butter. But I feel like if I'm going to butter the sauce... I'll start with just the brown butter, and I wouldn't know where to start. I think you want to start medium-low. Okay. If you use lower heat, you have a little more time to get it off. So it'll start to foam, and as the foam moves down, right? Right. You smell that toasted flavor. You have about a nanosecond to get it off because it's going to keep cooking. Okay. So one thing you could try is if it starts to go, get it off the heat quickly and then use a wooden spoon of some kind and stir it, and then it'll continue to brown slowly. Perfect. You're using the right pan. Sarah, what do you think? Do you cut the sticks into tablespoons? I do not. If all the pieces were smaller and all the pieces went in at the same time, I think, you know, then also it would all sort of brown more evenly. I also agree with Chris 100%. Once you see that it's just about there, you just get it right off the burner or even pour it into another container. Okay. Another thing, you might want to try a skillet or a saute pan. Yeah. And try to not crowd the pan so that it's all getting the same heat at the same time in the same space. That sounds like a great direction. I really appreciate y'all taking the time to even help me out here. I really do. I just want to comment that I think browning butter for mac and cheese is a brilliant idea. Well, cool. I'm glad to hear that, too. What's the name of your company? So I'm Mike, and we're called Mike and Cheese. (laughs) Oh. (laughs) That's pretty good. So we're a mac and cheese food truck. We've been around for about a year now, and we're making some moves. So I figured I'd start getting my recipes, you know, really right, and I really want to start wowing people. So I think brown butter is a good idea. I do, too. I think it's a great idea. Good for you. Yes. Take care. Thanks for calling me. Absolutely. Have a great one. Okay. Bye-bye. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Hi, my name is Greg. And where are you calling from? I'm in Los Angeles. I'm very happy to speak to both of you. How can we help you? In the process of sort of getting better at cooking and reading books, I've gotten to know some chefs. And most of the time when I'm talking to them, 
I understand everything they're talking about and the technique. But one thing that they constantly are telling me that I do not understand is that they all use Y peelers over swivel peelers. One of these chefs went so far as to tell me that the swivel peeler is like the amateur night of peelers and that you would be like shamed in a kitchen for using one. <laughs> well, you know what I would say to that? I'm sorry. I just don't put up with that nonsense. <laughs> if you like a swivel peeler, use a swivel peeler. I mean... Is there some sort of speed advantage with it? Is there a reason that chefs prefer them, that they're preferred in kitchen? Like every time I use it, there's an awkwardness to holding it. I feel more likely to cut myself when I'm peeling like downward with it. Is there some advantage to it that I don't understand? I don't use a Y-shaped peeler anymore. I know a lot of people in kitchens I've been in around do like them. To be honest with you, I think it's a little fashionista. You know, I think it's just like, it's cool to have a cheap, bright red or yellow peeler in your pocket and your chef's coat. I don't think so. I use other kinds of peelers. I use a serrated peeler, actually, that's straight. It's an OXO, good grips one. And I find that's terrific. I like the bigger handle. I'm using the Kuhn, like the Recon swivel peeler, which is also a serrated swivel peeler. That's great. But I guess I was sort of under the impression that in kitchens, if you're on the line, that the swivel peeler, for in terms of like your prep, that is the standard go-to, but maybe that's not the case. It depends what kind of kitchen you're in, and I think people in kitchens really don't care as long as you get the job done quickly and well. I know like in a French, you know, brigade system, you have to address your cutting board in the right way, and you have to hold your knife in the right way and everything else, but most other kitchens I know anything about, and Sarah knows more about it than I do. You get the job done, you get the job done, right? I don't think anyone's going to worry about a Y peeler versus swivel, right? I worked in restaurants in the United States for seven years. I don't ever remember there being this, you know, fight over what kind of peeler. I agree with Chris. It's completely silly. There should be no cook shaming. You know, if if you're starting with fresh ingredients and you're prepping from scratch, that's all that matters. That's fantastic. Well, that's... Don't put up with it. Just say it works for you. <laughs> As I dealt with my mother-in-law, my mother taught me to just be vague and say, oh, that's interesting. Oh, why peelers? Very interesting. So there you go. Wait, wait, a, wait a minute, Sarah, you say that to me all the time. What, what are you telling <laughs> oh, me? Oh, dear, Chris. No, secret, oh, now, secret now I know. Oh, dear, oh, dear. Um, well, I appreciate that, you guys. It's excellent ammo for the next time I run into these people. I will definitely use this argument. Yeah. Besides which, you're not working a stage in a kitchen. You don't have 500 pounds of turnips or potatoes or whatever. So how you want to do it at home, what difference does it make? I'd say whatever works for you is the yeah, way to go. who cares? Yeah. All right. Thank you guys very much. Great. All right. Hey, Take Craig. care. Okay. Bye. Bye-bye. Bye. This is Mill Street Radio. Now it's time for some culinary wisdom from one of our listeners. My name is Kathy Loomis from Angwin, California, and my cooking tip is about how to cut an onion without crying. After cutting the onion in half, immediately wipe the cutting board and knife with a wet paper towel to remove any onion juices. Then peel the onion halves in the sink under constant running cold water. After chopping the first half, wipe the cutting board and knife again and cover the bowl of chopped onions with a wet paper towel as you chop the other half. Keep the wet paper towel over the bowl of chopped onions until they're needed in your recipe. Happy cooking! If you'd like to share your own cooking tip on Mill Street Radio, please go to 177milkstreet.com slash radio tips.
Next up, it's food science writer J. Kenji Lopez-Alt. So, Kenji, what have you been uh, thinking about this week? Uh, well, I've been cooking a lot of fried rice recently, actually, because um, fried rice is something that I, well, I tend to make it a lot because I frequently have bits of, you know, odds and ends in the fridge, and fried rice is one of those dishes that is just sort of ideal for using up your fridge scraps. So I've been, yeah, I've been testing a lot about what makes good fried rice, um, what you have to do to the rice to make it ideal for cooking. You know, testing the old wisdom that day-old rice is the best, um, which turns out is actually true. What I did was I got all different types of rice, and then um, I I tried frying some immediately. I tried resting some overnight. Um, I tried resting some covered. I tried resting it uncovered. Um, and what I found is that the, the real important thing with fried rice is that the external part of each grain of rice is dry. It doesn't really matter if the whole grain is dry. Um, what matters is that the outside is dry. So if you have day-old rice and it's already started to dry out on the surface, that makes great fried rice. But if you want to have fried rice on the same day, you can cook your rice and then take it out, spread it out in like a half-inch thick layer or so on a sheet tray, and then right. leave it out like that. And if you want to speed it up, you can fan it a little bit, point a fan at it. Um, and that's what sort of prevents it from sticking to itself. What you don't want to do, um, which is what I found, is that anywhere between like an hour and six hours or so, that window of time after you cook the rice, that's the worst time to fry your rice. Hmm. That's when it sort of gets like clumpy and mushy and, and really clumps up. So either you want to fry your rice like right after you cook your rice and let it let it um, air dry, um, or you want to do it next day. Okay, so I have some questions. So in terms of actually frying the rice, mm -hmm. you know, I've, I've done it. I've seen it done in Thailand, other places. Uh, do you have a method that you think is superior or does it really not matter? I think a wok is the best thing to stir fry in um, as opposed to a sort of a Western skillet. No, I agree. You know, when, when, you're, when you're doing it at home, the, the, the tips I have would be break up your rice first before it goes into the pan. And then just as with any stir fry at home, you know, your home burner doesn't get as hot as a restaurant. So you really want to go in batches. So I would say like no more than a half pound of stuff at a time. And so usually what I'll do is whatever sort of mix-ins I have. So like vegetable scraps, I cut them into, you know, if I have like some, yesterday I made some fried rice with um, some asparagus and some snap peas that I sliced on a bias and some mushrooms. So I sauteed those all first in the wok, stir fried them first, take them out, then reheat the wok again, cooked half the rice, take it out again, cook the next half of the rice, and then finally dump everything all in together. Um, and, you know, and personally, I tend to go a little bit easy on the, on the sauces. You know, like I, I sometimes even like just a fried rice that just has salt and a little bit of white pepper, um, you know, not even with any soy sauce or oyster sauce. But of course you can, you know, soy sauce, oyster sauce, fish sauce, but whatever you do, you want to go easy with it so that it doesn't sort of like steam and to cause the rice to clump up. One, one neat thing that I've been trying for my book is actually trying to capture that wok hay flavor, that smokiness that you get from using a really high powered uh, wok burner. And the way I do that is by using a blowtorch. I kind of blow, point the blowtorch into the wok while I toss it with the other hand. Um, and so the flames from the blowtorch singe the fat as you're tossing things and it, you know, and it creates those sort of burnt smoky flavors that you get from really high heat, uh, typical wok cooking from a restaurant that you can't really recreate at home otherwise. And, and you know, you, you, it takes some practice to do, of course, and, and, um, and you probably want to take out an extra insurance policy. But the great thing about it is that it works both on an electric and an induction and with a gas stovetop. So whatever type of cooktop you have, you can actually get that wok hay flavor, which um, I think otherwise is impossible to capture. Are you hopeful your publisher will allow you to put that in the book versus getting sued by a couple thousand people who buy it and their house burns down? Um, they haven't said anything so far, so I think we're good. We'll see. Could you just for one second talk about Wok Hay, that 
that yeah. unique aroma. So it's it's very similar. So the flavor that you get when you're cooking, say, a hamburger on a um, outdoor grill versus in a skillet. So on an outdoor grill, the fat and juices from the hamburger are dripping off, and then as they fall into the coals, the oils immediately singe and vaporize, and they redeposit some of those burnt byproducts onto the surface of the burger. Mm. And that's what gives it that sort of smoky, grilled flavor. Kenji Lopez-Al, thank you very much. Uh, How to cook with leftover rice. Don't use it for the first six hours. You're good to go. Thank you, Kenji. Thank you. That was J. Kenji Lopez-Alt. He's the chief culinary consultant for Serious Eats, a food columnist for The New York Times, also author of The Food Lab. I don't blame Julia Child. Cooking used to be, with the exception of emperors, kings, and royalty, a frugal, everyday affair. It was fried rice or throw-together flatbread, grain porridge, simple soups, and an amazing array of preserved foods thanks to the necessity of preservation. And this scrappy, practical approach was both local and also personal. Julia single-handedly got America cooking again, but with an imported cuisine, one that was deeply personal to her. The lessons of the past, I think, are clear. Cooking thrives when it speaks to our soul, to our heritage, and to our landscape. Cooking is not a hobby. It's a way of life. That's it for today. If you tuned in too late or just want to listen again, you can download and subscribe to Mill Street Radio and Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you find your podcasts. To learn more about Milk Street, please go to 177milkstreet.com. There you can download each week's recipe, watch the latest season of our television show, or order our latest cookbook, Milk Street Fast and Slow, Instant Pot Cooking at the Speed You Need. You can also find us on Facebook at Christopher Kimball's Milk Street, on Instagram and Twitter at 177 Milk Street. We'll be back next week, and thanks, as always, for listening. Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is produced by Milk Street in association with WGBH. Executive producer, Melissa Baldino. Senior Audio Editor, Melissa Allison. Co-Executive Producer, Annie Sinsabaugh. Associate Producer, Jackie Nowak. Production Assistant, Sarah Clapp. And Production Help from Debbie Paddock. Senior Audio Engineer, David Goodman. Additional Editing from Vicki Merrick, Sydney Lewis, and Samantha Brown. And Audio Mixing from Jay Allison at Atlantic Public Media in Woods Hole, Massachusetts. Theme Music by Chubob Crew. Additional Music by George Bernal Egloff. Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is distributed by PRX. 